0: Good evening, Patriots. And it's Thursday, January 19th in the year 2023. East Coast, you are now into Friday. Fridays are always nice to arrive at. We'll get there soon enough. Before we begin, make sure that uh, you're taking good care of your family in these crazy times. Part of that is sleep. And the best place to do that is to use to give great sleep products for the whole house and for the whole family. MyPillow.com provides probably some of the best products out there that I've ever come across. Sheets, the Giza cotton sheets, the pillows, you name it. MyPillow Classic, they're fantastic. They always create an environment for a fantastic night's sleep, and that's something that's absolutely critical in this current day. Everything that we're surrounded with is trying to sap our energy and sap our emotions and wear us down. And so sleep is that revitalizing time no matter how much sleep you get whatever that period of time is you have an excellent point is to sleep and get the best maximize that sleep experience and so mypillow.com offers the products you need to ensure that you get just that an excellent night's sleep so head on over to mypillow.com forward slash barge use your promo code bards b-a-r-d-s you will not be disappointed and it's obviously a patriot driven company So much so that the FBI thought it was critical and important to raid Mike Lindell while getting a sandwich at Arby's because apparently being a pillow salesman is a threat to national security. So I consider anybody who is a threat to national security that the FBI doesn't like to be extra special. And since apparently pillows and sheets are a threat to national security, we all want more. So head on over to MyPillow.com forward slash Bards. Promo code is Bards, B-A-R-D-S. Tonight, I'm going to go over some history. And that history is one we've talked about. We haven't talked and focused on for some time. And it's the history of the Black Robe Regiment, which is really fundamental to our nation. I don't think people realize just how important the pulpit is. I won't say people in general, but I, I think most Americans miss the point of how important the pulpit was to the formation of our nation. The pulpit was a different pulpit than it is today. Today's pulpit has been neutered. It's been marginalized. It's been infected with this Christ consciousness, love all, new age crap that keeps going along. Our pastors of old were mighty men. And they were the foundations of why we have what we have today. The Declaration of Independence was all constructed around scripture, from scriptures, or from sermons, I'm sorry as was the basis, the principles of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They understood very clearly what the challenges were to tyranny, and they understood very clearly what they were trying to achieve. And there was great risk at doing what they did. Hardships was already real in the colonies. When you get into looking at the pilgrims and you look at how many of them died and how they had to completely rewrite the relationship of family, and, and I'm and being very honest here. It was, something, it was something like five women left with 20 men. And so they had to redefine the principles of what it is to rebuild. And they did. But they lost many, many people. And they survived. And this is how, these are the sort of hardships that were faced during that period. And they had, people knew hardship. We don't know hardship these days. Not like that. But they understood hardship. And they used their grit and their skills, their innovation, to overcome those hardships and to build a life and to ultimately build a nation. So the meaning of our nation meant something to them. Today, the meaning of our nation is a name that's been abused by every educator and every media person out there. And I'll be very honest. When we get into our histories and we look at where we came from and we look at how it's being taught today, Every one of these people that's teaching these lies deserves to be cast into a hard labor camp where they can learn the meaning of real labor and not this intellectual nightmare that they keep pumping into kids' heads. So, this is from the National Black Robe Regiment page, the history of the Black Robe Regiment. I'm just going to read tonight the things that they have posted here, which I thought were really good. The Black Robe Regiment was the name that the British placed on the courageous and patriotic American clergy during the founding era, a backhanded reference to the black robes that wore that they wore. Significantly, the British blamed the Black Robe Regiment for American independence, and rightfully so for modern historians have documented that quote, there is not a right Asserted in the Declaration of Independence, which has not been discussed by the New England clergy before 1763. And that note there is really important because that is a true statement that everything within the Declaration of Independence had been in sermons. Now, think about that. I mean, the sermons today are, you know, kind of like be sinful, you're a sin- sinner, you're, unless you're here, of course, but I'm saying sermons of normal sense. It's a lot about just biblical history, or it's a lot about, you know, you're a sinner, get right. At that point in time, they were talking about rights, liberty, the things that made man. And they were using scripture as that framework to talk about. So when they got to the Declaration of Independence, this was a familiar, for anybody that had been going to church, this was a familiar document. Because the clergy were a powerful force in this period. So continuing with what they have written here. It is strange to today's generation to think that the rights listed in the Declaration of Independence were nothing more than a listing of sermon topics that had been preached from the pulpit in the two decades leading up to the American Revolution, but such was the case. But it was not just the British who saw the American pulpit as largely responsible for American independence and government. Our own leaders agreed. For example, John Adams rejoiced that, quote, the pulpits have thundered and specifically identified several ministers as being among the characters of the most conspicuous, the most ardent, and most influential in, quote, the awakening and a revival of American principles and feelings that led to American independence. Across subsequent generations, the great and positive influence of the revolutionary clergy, was faithfully reported. For example, as a body of men, the clergy were preeminent in their attachment to liberty. The pulpits of the land rang with the notes of freedom that came from the American Quarterly Register in 1833. In the biblical Sacra, which is a British periodical of 1856, they wrote, if Christian ministers had not preached and prayed, there might not have been no revolution. There might have been no revolution as yet. Or had it broken out, it might have been crushed. That gives you the sense of how intense and focused they were and committed to this because that was a war based on principles of God, not a fight just on principles of independence. B.F. Morris, who is a historian in 1864, wrote, the ministers of the revolution were like their Puritan predecessors, bold and fearless in the cause of their country. No class of men contributed more to carry forward the revolution and to achieve our independence than did the ministers. By their prayers, patriotic sermons, and services, they rendered the highest assistance to the civil government, the army, and the country. Alice Baldwin, a historian of 1918, wrote, The Constitutional Convention and the written Constitution were the children of the pulpit. Clinton Rosader, a historian in 1953, wrote, Had ministers been the only spokesmen of the rebellion, had Jefferson, the Adamses, and Otis never appeared in print, The political thought of the revolution would have followed almost exactly the same line. In the sermons of the patriot ministers, we find expressed every possible refinement of the reigning political faith. Isn't that amazing? Our sermons were so alive with the principles of liberty, of free men, of sovereignty, those things that God gave us. They were absolutely alive with it. And yet today, you're hard-pressed to find it anywhere. It's a sad change, but it's a change that we're going to have to make because ultimately, if we want to get this country back as we do, it's going to take a stronger pulpit than we have or have had for probably over 100 years. This continues, the American clergy were faithful exponents of the fullness of God's word, applying its principles to every aspect of life, thus shaping America's institutes and culture. They were also at the forefront of proclaiming liberty, resisting tyranny, and opposing any encroachments on God-given rights and freedoms. In 1898, Methodist bishop and church historian Charles Galloway rightly observed of those ministers, quote, mighty men they were of iron nerve and strong hand, an unblanched cheek and heart of flame. God needed not needs Shaken by the wind, not men clothed in soft raiment, referencing Matthew seven eleven seven 7 to 8. But heroes of hardihood and lofty courage, and such were the, the sons of the mighty who responded to the divine call. Wow. That's just, when you think about it, just what a profound moment in history that was. And we're facing the same thing now. We're facing the second American revolution now, and this is the mightiness that we need a lot more of. But the ministers during the revolutionary period were not necessarily unique. They were simply continuing continuing what ministers had been doing to shape American government and culture in the century and a half preceding the revolution. For example, early settlers who arrived in Virginia beginning in 1606 included ministers such as Reverend Robert Hunt, Robert Burke, William Meese, Alexander Whitaker, William Wickham, and others. In 1619, they helped form America's first representative government, the Virginia House of Burgess, with its members elected from among the people. The legislature met in Jamestown Church and was opened with prayer by the Reverend Bucket, or I'm, I'm sorry, Reverend Buck. The elected legislators then sat in the church choir loft to conduct legislative business. As Bishop Galloway observed, quote, the first movement toward democracy in America was inaugurated in the House of God and with the blessings of the minister of God. In 1620, the Pilgrims landed in Massachusetts to establish their colony. Their pastor, Robert John Robinson, charged them to elect civil leaders who would not only seek the common good, but would would also eliminate special privileges and status between governors and the governed. A radical departure from the practice of the rest of the world at the time. Pilgrims eagerly took that message to heart, organizing a representative government and holding annual elections. By 1636, they had also enacted a Citizens' Bill of Rights, America's first, in fact. In 1630, the Puritans arrived and founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and under the leadership of their minister, they too established a representative government with annual elections, by 1641, they also had established a Bill of Rights, quote, the Body of Liberties, it was called, a document of individual rights drafted by the Reverend Nathaniel Ward. In 1636, Reverend Rogers Williams established the Rhode Island Colony and its representative form of government, explaining that, quote, the sovereign, original, and foundation of civil power lies in the people. The same year Reverend Thomas Hooker along with Reverend Samuel Stone, John Davenport and Theophilus Eaton founded Connecticut the state. They not only established an elective form of government but in 1638 sermon in a 1638 sermon based on Deuteronomy 113 and Exodus 1821 the Reverend Hooker explained the three biblical principles that had guided the plan of government in Connecticut. One, and these are the three principles. One, the choice of public magistrates belongs unto the people by God's own allowance. Two, the privilege of election belongs to the people. And three, they who have the power to appoint officers and magistrates, i.e. the people, It is their power also to set the bounds and limitations of the power and place. Now consider this, that in this period, I'm going to read this part again, the privilege of election belongs to the people. They see it as a God-given right to the people. And today, as we know very well, the privilege of election is seen as the privilege of the elites to manipulate and lie to the people and to achieve whatever they deem as best for the people. That was not the way it started. And it was, it's, we've deviated so far from that point. Continuing, from the Reverend Hooker's teachings and leadership sprang the quote, fundamental orders of Connecticut, end quote, America's first written constitution and the direct antecedent to the federal constitution. But while Connecticut produced America's first written constitution, It definitely had not produced America's first written document of governance, for such written documents had been the norm for every colony founded by Bible-minded Christians. After all, this was the scriptural model. God had given Moses a fixed written law to govern that nation, a pattern that recurred throughout the scriptures. They're referencing Deuteronomy 17, 18-20, Deuteronomy 31 Twenty-four, two Chronicles thirty-four, fifteen to twenty-one, etc. As renowned Cornell University professor Clinton Rosader affirmed, quote, "The Bible gave a healthy spur to the belief in a written constitution. The Mosaic Code too was a higher law that men could live by and appeal to against the decrees and whims of ordinary men." Written documents of governance placed direct limitations on government and gave citizens maximum protection against the whims of selfish leaders. The practice of providing written documents had been in the practice of American ministers before Reverend Hooker's Constitution of 1638 and continued long after. For example, in 1676, New Jersey was chartered and then divided into two religious sub-colonies, Puritan East Jersey, and Quaker West Jersey. Each had representative government with annual elections. The governing document for West Jersey was written by Christian minister William Penn. It declared, We lay a foundation for after ages to understand the liberty, that they may not be brought in bondage, but but by their own consent we must put their power in the people. Under Penn's document, legislation was vested in a single assembly elected by all inhabitants and elections were to be by secret ballot. The principle of no taxation without representation was clearly asserted. Freedom of conscience, trial by jury, and immunity from arrest without warrant were guaranteed. This is all in 1676. In 1681, Penn wrote, the frame of government for Pennsylvania, it too established annual elections and provided numerous guarantees to citizens' rights. There are many additional examples, but it is indisputable that the ministers played a critical role in instituting and securing many of America's most significant civil rights and freedoms. As Founding Father Noah Webster affirmed, a learned clergy had had Great influence in founding the first genuine Republican governments ever formed, and which, with all the fa- faults and defects of the men and their laws, were the best Republican governments on earth. At this moment, the people of this country are indebted chiefly to the institutions of the rights and privileges which are enjoined. Daniel Webster, the great defender of the Constitution, agreed to. To the free and universal reading of the Bible in, the, in that age of men were much indebted to the right views of civil liberty because Christian ministers established in and America freedoms and opportunities not generally available even in the mother country of Great Britain that were also at the forefront of resisting encroachments on the civil and religious liberties that they had helped secure. So this starts to paint a picture on why there is such a war against Christianity. We begin to, as we begin to understand our history, and most importantly, our history that led up to the American Constitution, not the history of the Constitution or Revolutionary War. What we're starting to understand is that this entire country was built, as I say all the time, because people try to correct me. They say, no, we're built on Judeo-Christian ethics. And I was like, no, we're built on Christian foundations. All these are ministers here. I don't see one Jewish rabbi speaking up, just so I say it. This is a foundation of Christianity that had come from their migration from Europe. And this is what built the foundation of this nation. And these were powerful ministers, pastors, from the pulpit that were speaking the truth and standing strong and helping define an entire future in this country built on people's individual rights. Our country was unique in from the very beginning. And the idea that they didn't need somebody telling them what to do, they simply self-assembled, used the Bible as their foundation and extracted the knowledge of Scripture and what was in Scripture to guide them into building a new society. That is profound. But it's a lesson for today because as we're sitting here trying to muddle around with what to do, what direction we do we go? How do we reset our government? Our government has far fallen from the position of being a government founded on the foundations of Christian beliefs. We're not there anymore. So if we're going to talk about resurrecting a government or correcting a government or changing things, and you're going to hear a lot of pushback on this because they're going to try to tell you things like, well, we're a different country now. We have more integration with foreign cultures we have more different we have different issues of sexuality and identity the answer is it will never work unless we go back to where we were because this country's experiment for the world which became that city that city of light on the hill for others to see and to dream about and to want to be part of that inspiration for the world wasn't an inspiration made on inclusiveness wasn't an inspiration Based on gender plurality. It wasn't a generation, it wasn't an inspiration built on racial difference. It was an inspiration built on the commonness of man, based on Christian principles that were taught from the pulpit. The church was the foundation. The Christian church was the foundation of this nation. And again, when you start to appreciate how far back this goes, this we are now at 120. To 150 years before the revolution, which we don't even consider that history much. The pilgrims, in fact, were very anti-slavery. They, in, they intercepted a slave ship, freed all the slaves themselves. There was great people in this nation that saw men as equal. And so where hit a point here today when the church has been slaughtered by the influences of money, the corruptions and buyouts of the 501c3, the influences that come from seminary, they try to teach a different type of weakened Christianity, they put more emphasis on slick hairdos, skinny jeans, and loafers than they do on the true strength of the message. And for those out there that always talk heavily about doctrine, keep in mind that these were doctrinal pastors that were very clear that there was a line that they could not cross and that to, to, that there was an ultimate sacrifice to preserve freedom. This is a powerful foundation of our nation that we do not celebrate enough. I don't want to celebrate a politician. I could care less about the history of these politicians. It is inspiring to know our founding fathers, it's inspiring to know what documents they created and signed, but our history tends to stop there instead of going deeper into where the origins of that was, and again, it was in the pulpit. And I guarantee you 99.9% of the kids coming out of school today or even out of university have no idea about that. In fact, most of them have never read the Constitution nor the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights. For example, let's start again. because Christian ministers established in American freedoms and opportunities not generally available even in the mother country of Great Britain, they were also at the forefront of resisting encroachments on the civil and religious liberties as they had helped secure. We already read that now to continue. For example, when crown-appointed Governor Edmund Andros tried to seize the charters of Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts... Revoke their representative governments and force the establishment of of the British and Anglican Church upon them. Opposition to Andros' plan was led by Reverend Samuel Willard, Increase Mather, and especially the Reverend John Wise. The Reverend John Wise was even imprisoned by Andros for his resistance, but he remained an unflinching voice for freedom. Penning in 1710 and 1777, 1717, excuse me, 1710 and 1717, two works forcefully asserting that democracy was God's ordained government in both church and state, thus causing historians to title him the founder of American democracy. And when Governor Berkeley refused to recognize Virginia's self-government, Quaker minister William Edmonton, Edmondson. And the Reverend Thomas Harrison led the opposition when governor and this is profound because Quakers are nonviolent, by the way, if you don't know that when Governor Thomas and opposition doesn't mean he was violent, but they led an opposition. That's even a big move for Quakers. It's kind of like when you had the Amish vote for Trump because they never get involved in politics. Let me get caught up here. Then, when Governor Thomas Hutchinson ignored the elected Massachusetts legislature, Reverend Doctor Samuel Cooper led the opposition. And similar pattern was followed when Governor William Burnett dissolved the New Hampshire legislature. Governor Botocourt disbanded the Virginia House of Burgess. Governor James Wright disbanded the Georgia Assembly, etc. See, so what you're seeing here is that there was a significant effort by England to overthrow these movements. And all, these, all of this, remember, these governors were coming from the crown. And so you had a big emphasis to try to overthrow these people-based governances because to do so would sever and, and diminish the power of the royal families. And yet, it was, the, again, the pastors that led so much of this. And because American preachers consistently opposed encroachments on civil and religious liberties, when the British imposed on Americans the 1765 Stamp Act, an early harbinger of the rupture between the two nations soon to follow, at the vanguard of the opposition in the act were the reverends Andrew Elliot, Charles Chauncey, Samuel Cooper, Jonathan Mayhew, and George Whitfield. Whitfield even accompanied Benjamin Franklin to parliament to protest the act and assert colonial rights. In fact, one of the reasons that American resistance to the Stamp Act became so widespread was because, quote, the clergy fanned the fire of resistance to the Stamp Act into strong flames. So the British imposed the Stamp Act, which was an, an extension of their taxation powers and many other things. And again, it was the clergy that stood up to it. And so when you hear today that there's no such thing, church and state are separated, and they tell you that their church is not to be involved in politics, that's an absolute lie. The separation between church and state is that the church is allowed to speak and do as it will without any in- interference with, by, or through the state, meaning they can speak about politics, meaning that they can speak about issues, social issues, cultural issues. They can call out things about LGBTQ, whatever. And there's no fear of reprisal from the government. But today that's defined through the 501c3 framework that they're given, that they are not to speak on certain topics. Otherwise they will lose their status. And even worse, thanks to the new marriage act that was rammed through. If you're a church and you're on 501c3, if a gay person or someone else, lesbian, LGBT, whatever, wants to get married in the church and you refuse, you are liable to lose your status and then be liable for all the back taxes that go along with it. As tensions with British continued to grow, ministers such as Reverend George Whitfield and Reverend Timothy became some of the earliest leaders to advocate America's separation from Great Britain. There are many additional examples, but the historical records res- respecting the leadership of the clergy were so clear that in 1851, distinguished historian Benson Lossing concluded the Puritan preachers also promulgated the doctrine of civil liberty. That the sovereign was amenable to the tri- tribunal of public opinion and ought to conform to in practice to the expressed will of the majority of the people. By degrees, their pulpits became the tribunes tribunes of the common people, and on all occasions, the Puritan ministers were the bold asserters of that freedom which the American Revolution established. However, Christian ministers did not just teach principles that led to independence. They also practiced on the battlefield to secure that independence. One of the numerous examples is Reverend Jonas Clark, when Paul Revere set off on his famous ride it was to the home of the Reverend Clark in Lexington that he rode patriot leaders John Hancock and Samuel Adams were lodging as they did oft as they often did with Reverend Clark after learning of the approaching british forces hancock and adams turned to pastor clark and inquired of him whether the people were ready to fight clark unhesitatingly replied i have trained them this very hour when the original alarm sounded in Lexington to warn of the oncoming British menace citizens gathered at the town green and according to the early historian Joel Headley there they found their pastor the Reverend Clark who had arrived before them the roll call the roll was called and 150 answered into the names the church the pastor, and his congregation thus standing together in the dim light awaiting the redcoats while the stars looked tranquilly down upon the sky above them. <laughs> I think of that as, I'm like, that is a different world than today. What an amazing story. Could you imagine? Like today your church is like, all right, stand to, get your arms, let's go. We're standing up against the FBI. Good luck, Right. But this today, that is how our country was was founded. And that was founded because we had bold and fearless pastors. They were not afraid of anything because they were only fearful of God, not of governments. We need to return to that again. We need to get back to having pastors that are so fearless that nothing in this government is afraid of them. And they will speak the truth and rally their congregations to make the stand. Could you imagine in a town where all the pastors and their congregations, every time there was an incursion by IRS, FBI, DHS, what other stupid agency you come up with, that they literally call their people to to the line and they stand up and they're like, I'm sorry, but you are not allowed here. And if you do, you're going to go through God's children that are armed and ready to stand. This is literally what happened at Lexington and Concord. The British did not appear at the first alarm, and the people, this is continuing with Lexington Concord, and the people returned home. At the subsequent alarm, they reassembled, and once the sound of the battle subsided, some 18 Americans lay on the Lexington Green. Seven were dead, all from Reverend Clark's church. And notice, they didn't try to fire him or rebuke him, by the way, nor did they call him racist, misogynist, and whatever else they'd come up with today. Heedly, therefore, concluded the teachings of the pulpit of Lexington caused the first blow to be struck for an American independence. Key words there. The teachings of the pulpit of Lexington caused the first blow to be struck for American independence. The American Revolution was started officially not only by the pulpit, but by the members of that congregation. And that was the congregation of Reverend Clark. So, and historian James Adams added, the patriotic preachings of the Reverend Jonas Clark primed those guns. When the British troops left Lexington, they fought at Concord Bridge and then headed back to Boston, encountering increasing American resistance on their return. Significantly, many, many, who awaited the British along the road were local pastors such as the Reverend Phillips Payson and the Reverend Benjamin Balch, who had heard of the unprovoked British attack on the Americans, taken up their own arms, and then rallied their congregations to meet the returning British. A word of the attack spread wider. Pastors from other areas also responded. For example, When word reached Vermont, the Reverend David Avery promptly gathered 20 men and marched towards Boston, recruiting additional troops along the way, and the Reverend Stephen Farrer of New Hampshire led 97 of his parishioners to Boston. The ranks of the resistance, to the British swelled through the efforts of the Christian ministers, who were far more effective than army recruiters in rounding up citizen soldiers. This is such a heroic story of God's people that we just don't tell enough. We don't emphasize the glory of truly Christian people wanting to be left alone, living a life and building an entire vision of a government and a world based on God's principles. And then, when they were finally struck, standing to and moving together to rally in arms to fight the British. You know, when we talk about the blessing of this nation and the fact that we were able to defeat the British, the blessings of this nation are rooted in, truly in in Scripture, truly in the Bible. Weeks later, when the Americans fought the British at Bunker Hill, American ministers again delved headlong into the fray. For example, when the Reverend David Grosvenor heard that the battle had commenced, he left his pulpit, rifle in hand, and promptly marched to the scene of action, as did Reverend Jonathan French. The pattern was common through the Revolution, as when Reverend Thomas Reed marched to the defense of Philadelphia against British General Howe, and Reverend John Steele led American forces in attacking the British, the Reverend Isaac Lewis helped lead the resistance to the British landing at Norwalk, Connecticut, the Reverend jo- Joseph Willard raised two full companies and then marched with them to battle. The Reverend James Latta, when many of his par- parishioners were drafted, joined with them as a common soldier. And Reverend William Gra- Graham joined the military as a rifleman in order to encourage others in his parish to do the same. Furthermore, and this continues, quote, of, John, of Reverend John Craighead, it is said that he fought and preached alternately. Reverend Dr. Cooper was captain of a military company. Reverend John Blair Smith, president of Hampton-Sydney College, was captain of a company that rallied to support the retreating Americans after the Battle of Cowpens. Reverend James Hall commanded a company that armed against Cornwallis, Reverend William Graham, rallied his own neighbors to dispute the passage of Rockfish Gap with Tarleton and his British Dragoons. There are many additional examples. No wonder the British dubbed the patriotic American clergy the Black Regiment. But because of their strong leadership, ministers were often targeted by the British. As Headley confirms, there was a class of clergymen and chaplains in the revolutionary in the revolution whom the British when they once laid hands on them treated with the most barbarous severity dreading them for their influence they wielded and ha- they wielded and hating them for their obst- obstinacy courage and enthusiasm they infused in the rebels they violated all the usages of war among the s- civilized nations in order to inflict punishment upon them Among these was Reverend Naftali Daggett, president of Yale. When the British approached New Haven to enter private homes and desecrate property and belongings, Daggett offered stiff and at times almost single-handed resistance to the British invasion, standing alone on a hillside repeatedly firing his rifle down at the hundreds of British troops below. Eventually captured over a period of several hours, the British stabbed, pricked Daggett multiple times with their bayonet. Local townspeople lobbied the British and eventually secured the release of the preacher, but Daggett never recovered from those wounds, which eventually caused his death. When the Reverend James Caldwell offered similar resistance in New Jersey, the British burned his church. He and his family were murdered. The British abused, killed, and imprisoned or imprisoned many other clergymen, who often suffered harsher treatment and more severe penalties than did ordinary imprisoned soldiers. But the British targeted not just ministers, but also their churches. As a result of the 19 church buildings in New York City, 10 were destroyed by the British, and most of the churches in Virginia suffered the same fate. The pattern was repeated throughout many other parts of the country. Truly, Christian ministers provided courageous leadership throughout the revolution, and as briefly noted earlier, they had also been largely responsible for laying its intellectual foundation. To understand more of this influence, consider Reverend John Wise. As early as 181687, the Reverend Wise was already teaching that taxation without representation is tyranny, the cons- and the consent of the governed was the foundation of the government and that every man must be acknowledged equal to every man. In 1772, with the revolution on the horizon, two of Wise's works were reprinted by leading patriots and the Sons of Liberty to refresh America's understanding of the core biblical principles of government. The first printing sold so fast that a quick second reprint was quickly issued. Significantly, many of the specific points made by Wise in the work subsequently appeared four years later in the very language of the Declaration of Independence, as historian Benjamin Morris affirmed in 1864. Quote, Some of the most glittering sentences in the Immortal Declaration of Independence were almost literally quotations from this 1772 reprinted essay of John Weiss. It was used as a political textbook in The Great Struggle for Freedom. And decades later, when President Calvin Coolidge delivered his 1926 speech in Philadelphia on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, he similarly acknowledged, the thoughts in the Declaration can very largely be traced back to what John Weiss was writing in 1710. It was Christian ministers such as John Weiss and scores like him who, through their writings and their countless sermons, such as the election sermons and their sermons of the biblical principles of government that laid the intellectual basis for American independence. Patriots, this is the most amazing story in our history, that if people truly understood it, read it, and learned it, we would not be where we are today. Our country is a Christian foundation country, nothing other. It was based on the courage of Christian ministers, pastors, so forth, clergy, who risked their lives, who risked their churches, who risked their families, and did so against the crown at great risk to speak the ideals of a new vision of a country built on God's law, God's principles. This is stunning. And as we begin to understand truly who we are, this is part of who we are. This is the legacy that we fight for today. So when you get into a place where you feel like it's, oh, man, it's difficult. I don't know if I can get through this. Check yourself. Because those are those that went long before us, those that established this nation for us, had to suffer in unmeasurable ills and risks and consequences for some of their actions. They took real risk. And they were willing to and they needed to because otherwise the United States would never have been. And probably, as you heard earlier in this reading, even if some of the great works about rising up as a nation from some of our founding fathers had not been written, as they said, the trajectory and foundations of the revolution were already built and set in stone because of the clergy of this nation. So as you're looking around at your church or your community, Look at what's become of our churches. Ask yourself why we're here. We can start right at the pulpit. That's why we are here. We've, there are some churches that are strong. I'm not ever going to take that away. But so many of the churches have become weak, become watered down. They don't understand the true commitment to what God's word is. And this country is a testimony to what the true commitment of that is. And that in itself is a statement of fight and defend occupy, expand, subdue. That's the martial aspect of our faith that is not taught. And I run into so many still that say like, why I don't, we must pray for love and get along in peace. They did all of that, but they also understood that there was a line that they would never cross at any cost, that they would stand together in the body of Christ, that they would rally to each other's defense that they were willing to sacrifice their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor all for the principles of establishing and affirming God's rule in this land and to build a nation that was framed by God's law. Mosaic law. Let that sink in in your prayers. Let that sink in in your day and your life of what is before us and what is upon us and what is expected of us when it says in the the Declaration of Independence that it is our duty to throw off such forms of government, referring to despotism. It isn't an option. It's a duty. And there's, as said by people that understood the consequence of what they wrote, they didn't write that lightly. They didn't write that frivolously. They wrote that with the passion of understanding what the true sacrifice was because they were dealing with With the crown, with real consequences like having your church burned down, being stuck a hundred times with bayonets, having your family murdered or raped, these were real issues. The British army, the British people at the time, and they are our brethren So in so many ways, but the British people at the time were deeply asleep and most were unwilling to stand against their crown that was extolling unheard crimes against us. That is the same situation we are in today, not the British, but look around us. We have a government that is, thats that has been pushing untold crimes on us while so many have willfully gone along with it. We are in the second American revolution. The difference is now there is a world that's awakening that eyes are on, but we still have the obligation to lead. Our time is now. This is our year to stand. This is truly the year of the second American Revolution. And whatever that sacrifice means for you, I don't know. But one thing it cannot mean is finding a way to protect your sanctity and your safety. Because in protecting liberty, in protecting sovereignty, which God gave us, you have to be willing to put it all on the line. That's what the origins of this nation are. That's what our pulpits did. That's what people from from the pews and the congregations did. Because they understood and they trusted in God so much that they understood that what was at stake was their religious right to worship God himself. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on our own history, we're deeply humbled. We are deeply humbled by the sacrifices made from the pulpit, from the pastors, from the clergy. And even from the congregations to preserve, to build, and to preserve a freedom that you had given and blessed us with. Father, we pray now that that sort of fire can re- be resurrected in the bellies of the many. Those that are truly walking with Christ and seeking that mighty walk as a, a warrior in Christ, we need to have that fire of righteousness rekindled. So we pray for that tonight, Father. A powerful prayer that says it's time for those that are walking with Jesus to stand as our founding fathers did, as those that built the foundations of this nation. A nation built from the rocks of faith that were forged in the churches from the pulpits of the time. Pulpits that were mighty, clergy that were mighty. We pray for the resurrection of that, and that is exists within the ranks of the many. That fire exists now within the hearts of your children. Perhaps they need a nudge. Perhaps there's a timidity timidity because they feel that they haven't gone to the right school. All that's lies. It's about the passion in Jesus. It's about the passion in sovereignty, the passion for liberty, the passion for freedom, and the passion to live under your law. So, Father, we just pray for the guidance and the wisdom. We equally pray for the fire of righteousness to rise because that time is is before us to truly take this country back in your name. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, patriots, we have a great history in this nation. And for our international listeners, we are all now one in the body of Christ fighting the same fight. We have people from UK, I love UK, you know that. But we have to be honest about what happens in our history because we cannot allow the sleepers to run us over. We are at a cusp of greatness or a cusp of great failure, one of the two. I'll choose greatness. And it means that each one of us is going to have to work harder than we've ever imagined. More hours, more dedication, more sacrifice. For some, that seems impossible. It didn't seem impossible to them. There were no conveniences or distractions of social media then. There were no libraries of mass excellence or internet stores to go buy stuff on. Books were limited, and yet they had to research and read what they could. Bibles, at certain points, were hard to get their hands on, and yet they listened and learned the scriptures. This was a time of immense learning of applied learning, and absolutely deep commitment to the principles of faith, Jesus's words, and the laws of Father God. That country is within our grasp again. This isn't a country that we can move forward on and try to wash away the origins and try to tell ourselves somehow that it's going to work just fine because it will not. We must go back to go forward. We must seek the ancient paths. And for those that choose not and to say they will not walk in it, then let them go. But we must seek the foundations of what was given, revive it with the mightiness of the spirit that God gave us, and put God back on the throne. Keep your eyes up. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow. for bended knee. Until then, or until the next time. God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now.
1: Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again Dive into the deepest dead Oh, I want to feel something Let me get back in